Podcast One. Today's guest used to mow lawns for a living. Now he's the founder of Greenpell, an online service connecting homeowners to lawn care professionals. And here's the kicker. In just three years, it's turning over 20 million bucks a year and experiencing 100% growth year on year. It's a very well-fertilised episode 503 of the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing clippings. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, you, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner and you are ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And if that's not enough and you are itching to fast track your marketing, then let's get personal with a one-on-one coaching session which you can book over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Big episode today, Tennessee Gardner turned e-commerce guru Brian Clayton joins us to share how he's created the Uber of lawn care. This week's Monster Prize Draw winner shares how he's grown his barbershop thanks to an idea from this podcast and I let you in on next week's guest. As per usual team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck. Right in. Brian Clayton was the founder of Peachtree, one of the largest landscaping companies in Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million in annual revenues before selling it in 2013. He's now the co-founder of the three-year-old Greenpell business, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. Now, how's this? Already it has annual turnover of $20 million, has 100,000 active customers, completing thousands of transactions every day, and he's experiencing 100% growth year on year. That's a great story. What's particularly interesting is Brian has done this without any prior e-commerce experience. Even more interesting, I reckon, is that he could have easily, thanks to the sale of his first business, chosen to sit on a yacht sipping G&Ts somewhere in the South Pacific. Well, fortunately for us, he took the high road and he's here to tell us exactly how he's done it. I started off by asking Brian what he puts his success down to. Grit, perseverance, just hard work and taking goals and refining them down into little small baby steps and just rinse and repeat and and is trying to hold every month, every year accountable to grow that business from scratch, just myself and a push mower to when it was acquired to over 150 employees and several hundred pieces of equipment and over 70 trucks going out every day. And I attribute it to just small incremental success repeated over and over again for 15 years. Wow. So you're one of those guys, you started off on the tools, you're on a ride on lawnmower. Did, did did you back then think you were going to grow it into a mini empire? Was that your intention? Well, I started when I was really young. I was actually, uh, I was a teenager and I was up in my room playing Nintendo one day and my dad came into the room. He said, hey, we got a job to do. We're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. 
and I didn't want to take up that job, and he forced me to. And the two of us went and mowed the neighbor's grass, and I remember in two hours we made 20 bucks, and we split it. He actually split it with me. And ever since then, I was just, I was hooked. I was hooked on owning my own business, uh, becoming an entrepreneur. I was only 16 years old at the time, but I've never had a boss. I've, I've never had a job. I've always worked for myself. And I, I, I in the beginning, honestly, no, it was, it was just a love for setting my own path, charting my own course, setting my own hours, and making as much money as I wanted to make so long as I was willing to work hard. It didn't really hit me that this thing could be a real business until probably I was age 21, 22 when I was in college and I was going to school at night and mowing yards 12, 13 hours a day and going to school two or three hours every night. Uh, when I started comparing with what I was making running this business with what my, my colleagues were, were getting in the marketplace when they were graduating business school. And I thought, man, if I... If I hang this up and go into into a, some sort of business role at a large company, which is what I had planned on doing, I was going to take a major pay cut. And I, I, I guess I was 22, 23 years old. I had five people working for me. We had several hundred accounts at the time. And I actually sat down and wrote a business plan. And it was it was really crude. But I thought, okay, this is how I want to double the business every year for the next five years. And where I ended up wasn't that much far off from that plan. And I had to learn a lot of things the hard way through trial and error because back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, we really didn't have access to a lot of the things that we have today, podcasts like this one, YouTube. And so it took me years to learn how to become a business owner, a successful entrepreneur, a good leader, a good manager. But over time, I just got better and better and, and just continuously tried to level up. As you were growing Peachtree, what was the biggest mistake you made? Well, there's there's hundreds. <laughs> the, the biggest one was in the in the early days trying to refine my sales process and and then trying to delegate that to a sales team. It took me literally seven years to, to figure that out. And for a long time, as I was growing that business from just myself executing the services to because uh, in that business, it all runs on crews and how many crews you're sending out to take care of clients. And I had just one crew for a year and then the next year, two crews, the year after that, three crews and all up to about four, four crews. I was still running one of them. And so I'm running one of these trucks and I have four other crew or three other crew foremen running their trucks and I'm still doing the sales. I'm literally I'm in the truck making phone calls while my crew is out working. And I did that for a real long time. I spent too long doing it. I I wish I had invested in a repeatable sales strategy early on and refined that because I I could have accelerated the growth of that company and and built it in half the time. If I had known then what I know now. Clearly a point where you did implement a repeatable sales strategy. What did that look like? So for us, it, it was something that I just had to learn by doing it wrong for so long, and, and, I was, and the way I did it wrong was just competed on price. I tried to figure out ways to keep my overhead as, as low as possible and, and run our, our organization as efficiently as possible. And I would try to undercut my competitors. And in, that, in this business, it is a very price-sensitive business, and it is a competitive business. However, selling on price is a, is a race to the bottom, and it took me a long time to to develop a sales process that, yes, price is important, but maybe it's not the most important thing. 
and I, I slowly began to learn to develop our, our sales proposition, our value proposition around, we're not just your grass cutting service, we're not just your landscaping contractor, we're in partnership with you at, to help you make more money. And so one of our first clients was McDonald's, and we, we literally... Well done. How do you get McDonald's? <laughs> I'll have to go down that rabbit hole. Well, well, well. okay. I said I was mowing a lot of residential properties. So, so uh, uh, and it, but it's hard to scale this type of business solely doing residential, basic residential work. So when I say like one of my true, true clients uh, in terms of the commercial space, it would, it would, McDonald's is one of the first ones because we were mowing the residential property for a franchise owner. And he owned two uh, franchises in, in, in some small towns nearby where we, where we lived. And I just begged him for, for years to let, give me a crack at him. And he never, he never thought I could handle it because I was a smaller business. And, and to, you know, to your point, you have to be an established player to, to service a client like that. And finally he gave me a shot because I was, I was, able, to, I was able to spark his interest and say, hey, listen – We'll, we'll not only mow the yard, we'll clean all the cigarette butts out of the drive through every time we come to mow the grass. Because I think if your clients uh, are looking at a drive through full of cigarette butts, they may not be inclined to supersize the value meal or get an apple pie. And a simple a proposition is that it really hit home to him. He goes, you know what? That makes sense. Let's let's try it out. And so we we did that. We we took on those two properties. Can I, I just got to highlight that. It, it, Anyone listening, I mean, that's just, it's marketing 101, go the extra mile. Uh, how many businesses in your industry, how many business owners, Brian, would have gone, yeah, we'll just come and mow your lawn and we'll do it, do a good job, but that's it. 99, 99.9% of them, you know, because that's what they think they're in the business of doing. They think they're in the business of, of cutting grass when in fact their business is to beautify that property to help that owner achieve their objectives. You know, I, I kind of hit on something early, but it took me years to kind of hone that strategy to no matter what the clientele was, whether it was McDonald's and, and all, any fast food uh, client, because at the end of that company, we had over 400 restaurant locations that we were servicing. And, and, but for, let's say, an apartment complex, if, if uh, you say, listen, what is your vacancy rate? What's your occupancy right now? 83%. Okay, I believe that if we take over your landscape maintenance for the next 12 months, we can improve that to 87%. And here's how we can do it. You've got your your show property over here. Let's install some floral color there. Uh, let's let's beef up the landscaping around that property. At the entrance, uh, let's, let's do these features to get people's attention, to draw them in, maybe to take a tour. And, and that, that worked. We were able to deliver results. And so we might have been a little more expensive but we made our clients more money because that was that was how we approach sales. And that's how we approach running the business. Well, when you add value, uh, it's no longer a race to the bottom in regards to discounting, and you can charge more. At least you can hold a price. Brian, I had a um, I had a guest on the show three or four years ago. His name was Taz Morlis. He was a commercial painter. He did apartment blocks and residential units, etc. Um, the moment his business went, you know, like four, five, six times in revenue, was the moment he stepped off the tools, stepped out from behind the paintbrush, and purely focused on generating inquiry, doing 
doing the quotes, following up the quotes, and his business all of a sudden changed. He missed the tools, but his business grew exponentially. I'm guessing that's the same for you. What what was that moment? Tell us about the moment where you made the decision that you are here to run a business. I read a book called The E-Myth, and I wish I had read that book year one. What an awesome manual for how to run a small business and how to how to really think about systemizing it. And at the time, I really was totally new to all of these concepts. And that book really codified it for me in such a clear way of understanding the simple uh, notion of, of working on your business versus working in your business. And that's something I think a lot of business owners don't really understand and they often conflate the two that they spend you know, years working in their business, killing themselves, working 50, 60, 70, 100 hour weeks, and they're not spending any time working on the business. So effectively, they've just created themselves a job. And for me, I, I, I was guilty of that too. I, I, I was a micromanager, I, I, I worked seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day to, to run and grow the business. And it wasn't until I understood that I have to create processes and roles around every function that was required to run that business. Sure, my name might be on eight out of 10 of those roles, but still I needed to, to, to delineate those. It wasn't until I understood that simple thing and then started like peeling myself away from them. And so peeling myself away from crew foreman of crew number four and peeling myself away of from chief mechanic and lawnmower blade sharpener. Uh, to where I could focus on sales and what those high leverage activities for myself are was until the business was, was able to get from 1 million to 3 to 5 to 8 to, to 10. Uh, it wasn't until I understood that and started working on it did I not, not, not get that fulcrum to, to, to get to the next level. You got it to $10 million, Brian, uh, at which time you decided to exit. How did the sale come about? My businesses are always have, have been a vehicle for my own personal development. If I, after I look back the last 20 years running small businesses, you know, I, I'm motivated by profit. Everybody is, but a big part of it is me growing as an entrepreneur, me growing just as a person, as a man in my skills and my capabilities. And I had reached the point where I took that business as far as I could. I, I had 130, at times 150 employees and I saw myself plateauing. I saw myself getting comfortable running it. And I decided, okay, it's time for the next challenge. And I had taken the company as far as I could. We were a market leader in, in, our, in our market in Nashville, Tennessee. I had no desire to take it multi-city. And so I decided, okay, let's craft this organization to be acquired. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done for a couple of reasons. One, just executing it, getting the deal done was, was extremely challenging. But also there was a psychological and emotional piece of it that I didn't anticipate. When you uh, spend 15 years running a business building from scratch, it really is your baby. And for me, it was a big part of my own personal identity. And so having to separate myself from that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It's kind of like uh, when you sell a company that you spent that long building, it's kind of like 
uh, another man moves into your house and you get to share your wife with her, with him, you know, and, and, and he doesn't listen to you about how, what she likes, you know, I like guess it's, it's, that's how I would describe it. And then after about six months, you move out of the house. It, it was, it was gut wrenching. Did that disappear once you saw the check come in for the sale of the business? You know, I mean, sure. You know, when that wire, the wire transfer hit and you're, you're getting calls from your banker all excited and, Stuff like that, yeah. I mean, that's the, that that there, there's definitely a victory celebration there. But the melancholy set in after that. Actually, when I realized, wow, this is no longer mine. Who am I now? What is my job here? What's my role here? Because I really loved running that company. Uh, I had a team. My culture in that business was was like my family, and so I no longer was the man there. And there was tears shed uh, from people that worked for me for. 10, 15 years since the beginning, I cried. So that it was it was emotional time. Aside from that, the mechanics of selling a business like that, I, you know, I've heard that if you're selling a business for five or $10 million, it's just as hard as selling a business for 50 or $100 million because players that buy businesses that size, the stakes are so high for them, they have to get it right. And so... The, the, the due diligence is excruciatingly hard. It took 60 days of just pouring over every canceled check over the last five years and all of our financials, and that was hard to do. Uh, there was a lot of what they call uh, retrading throughout the process where you, you have a term sheet in the beginning, but then as, that, as the sales process uh, goes on, there's a lot of uh, renegotiating of, of those terms, and you have to, you have to really step up and hone your negotiating skills on the fly. At least I did. So it was, a, it was a very stressful time, but got it done. We're chatting with Brian Clayton, who started one of Tennessee's largest landscaping companies called Peachtree. He's now gone off and started an online business called Greenpell, which I find really interesting. What a drastic change, Brian. First of all, explain what is Greenpell and how does it work? So Greenpell in one sentence is kind of like Uber for lawn mowing. If you're a homeowner and you need your yard mowed, uh, rather than calling around on Craigslist or off of Facebook or asking for friends and family for referrals, you can just get on Greenpell's website or mobile app Put your address in and you'll get five quotes back in less than 60 seconds. You can read reviews, look at the ratings for these pros and hire the service you want to work with all without making a phone, without even making a phone call, even if your grass is three feet tall. So it allows you to get done in a couple minutes what would normally take you hours or days. And then after that first lawn mowing service goes well, you can book that service right through the app for as long as you own the home. What online experience did you have outside of, I'm sure, promoting uh, Peachtree online on social media channels, et cetera, et cetera, but what online business did you have to think you could successfully start what is essentially a business in the sharing economy? Yeah, very good question. I knew it was a good idea because I had spent my entire life in the industry as a service provider. You would think it wouldn't be difficult to find a good lawn mowing service, but it actually is. These, these services kind of come and go and they're by nature not very reliable. And the good ones are hard to find because they don't have any brand presence. And so in my old business, we no longer did residential work towards the end of my tenure there, but we would still get 30, 40 phone calls every single day from homeowners 
begging us to come cut their lawn because they couldn't find anybody else to even return their phone call. So what we would do is we would keep a list of about 10 or 20 small service providers by the phone and the, and the receptionist would hand those numbers out. So effectively, we were a connecting service in our local community. One of our values was just to be helpful if at all possible, and that's what we did. And so I saw that, and after taking six or seven months off of after selling my business, I thought, you know, I'm looking at what ride sharing is doing for the taxing industry, Airbnb is doing for accommodations, and I thought, this is just a no-brainer, it's going to exist. So I had the idea right. What I didn't have right was how difficult the execution was going to be on building the technology and building the platform and getting that right. Because I had never done that. And I under-indexed and I, uh, I, I was naive about how difficult it was going to be to transition from a blue-collar entrepreneur as a contractor, basically, to a digital tech entrepreneur. And it took me at least three years until I made that full transition, in which I thought it was just going to be as simple as paying a uh, development agency to build it. And it wasn't. I literally thought when we started after I recruited two co-founders, that we were going to pay a local shop in Nashville that had coders to build the app. We would launch it, and and we would all just, you know, sit back and watch it grow. That's the furthest thing. That, that <laughs> I, I would have thought with that marketplace technology, though, you you wouldn't necessarily need to build it from the ground up. I know I've had a fellow on the show. His name's Jason Wyatt. I had him on about five years ago. He owns a business called Marketplacer.com, which you actually can buy the white labeled technology, uh, the white labeled, yeah, I'll say technology, and then you know put your brand over it. Did you actually build Green Pell from the ground up? Yeah. So a couple of those have have sprouted up. I haven't used that one personally. This was 2014, so it might have been before a lot of that was available. We have we built it from scratch three times. The first time, my two co-founders and I, out of our own pocket, spent $120,000 with a local shop in Nashville, Tennessee, to, to build the first version. And after we launched it, and I'm using air quotes here, we had 22 users. <laughs> And we realized that this thing was a total piece of crap. Nobody understood how to use it. It was clunky. It was difficult. It wasn't a good product. And we, we started to understand how much we didn't know. What did you miss? You were, you were loyal in using a local web developer uh, in Nashville. There's probably, well, there are there's web developers all over the world that could have done an amazing job, probably at a much cheaper price. What, what did you miss? Were you, were you sucked in? couple key things. I didn't understand even what the term user experience was at the time and what goes into crafting a simple, easy to use product. So just right from the, from the get go, the interfaces on how to, how to review quotes, how to hire a service provider and then how to schedule them again, as simple as those, as those actions sound, it was hard to use. It just wasn't designed well. And that was our fault because we didn't know what we were doing. It wasn't until we launched that the, the crappy version that we had that we were able to get feedback around it and understand, okay, this is how we really want to build this thing. And so when we launched the first version in the summer of 2014, we had to get users for it, and we didn't have a, any kind of marketing or user acquisition strategy. So my two co-founders and I, taking a page out of my former playbook from 15 years before, we uh, passed out 50 to 100,000 door hangers all around Nashville. 
to get people to use the website. And we did that, at least we knew that that wasn't going to be a repeatable marketing strategy, but we knew we had to get users to use the website so we could get feedback to understand what direction we needed to take this thing. And we were reading a book at the time called The Startup Owner's Manual by an author named Steve Blank. And one of his core concepts of that book was get out of the building. So one of the one of the fallacies when you're starting a tech company is that you can just sit in a room with your headphones on and, and code and not have to interact with anybody. And that's the trap a lot of startups fall into. And we we were falling into that trap, but we wanted to we wanted to follow the playbook, and so we did. We got out of the building, and so the first few dozen users that would use that used the website, the first version off of, that came off of the flyers that we passed out, we reached out to all of them, begging for them to meet with us. We would buy them coffee, buy them dinner, whatever it took, so we could get the feedback to understand what problem did they think we were solving, what why did they try to use it, why they didn't use it again. Where did we delight them, if, if any, in any way? Did it work? Did it not work? And where did we come up short? And we learned so much through those few dozen interviews that we were able to take that feedback, bake it into the next version. And then in the second version, we did, a, we did a smarter thing. We created a prototype for all of the interfaces before we laid the first line of code. And we then showed that prototype back in front of those same few dozen users just to ask them to use it. We didn't say anything, we just let them use it. And we conducted what they call usability tests, and we just took rigorous notes, understood, okay, this is, this is how this screen needs to be tweaked, this is how this interface needs to be improved. And it was through that iterative process that we were able to launch the second version, which had a much better success than, than the first version out of the gate. And as still as simple as those concepts sound, they're still core to how we, how we grow the platform today. Did you go back and use the same development company that built version one or you actually went elsewhere? Well, they went out of business. No, no surprises there. And uh, we realized that if you're going to be in the technology business, you have to be able to execute and build technology. We, we, we knew that it was a joke that we thought that we were going to build a startup, but not, we didn't know how to engineer software or design software. And so my, one of my co-founders had a little bit of an engineering mindset. And so he, he attended a code camp, a code academy here in Nashville called Nashville Software School. It was a six-month uh, program. And he learned from scratch back-end software development. My other co-founder learned front-end software development and design. And I studied rigorously marketing, growth hacking, PR, any way we could acquire users at a repeatable and scalable way. And so it, that took a long time for us to kind of learn those skills and, and retrain and retool ourselves from scratch. But as we did, we were learning as we were working on it and we just got better and better. And then we were able to, to again, start to delegate some of those things to individual specialists as the revenues grew. A business like GreenPel, which is essentially a directory business, always fascinates me because it's the chicken or the egg. Do you, you've got to get users and you've got to get advertisers, essentially. I imagine the first step was for GreenPel was to get advertisers, in this case, uh, lawn mowing services, because then you could go out to the user and say, hey, look at what we've got. Am I right? And if I am, then how did you go and get a critical mass of service providers before you went out to uh, the public? 
Absolutely. Great question. So to your point, yes, you are correct. In a multi-sided marketplace such as this or or any multi-sided marketplace, the chicken and egg problem is is one of the most difficult to solve, especially if your marketplace is geographically constrained, meaning every city has to be built from the ground up from scratch. We did this wrong for a long time, but we finally developed a playbook where we understood how to have a repeatable market-by-market, city-by-city strategy. And what we came to understand was, especially in the early days, you're early adopting vendor users or partners. You have to treat them like gold because you have to you have to convince them and sell them on the vision that you can drive them enough meaningful material business to improve their business and buy enough of their discretionary attention for them to hang around for a few weeks or a few months while you have them onboarded onto the platform to then go and get the consumer side or the demand side. So it's a delicate orchestration, a delicate balance to finesse your way through, especially in the early days. A lot of it's hand cranking and hand-to-hand combat. Our first market was Nashville, Tennessee, and we would we would call every lawn care service that advertised on Craigslist because we knew they were hungry, we knew they wanted more clients, and we had a better solution for them. And they didn't have to post another Craigslist ad ever again. We were going to drive them clients for free. And we were able to get a dozen or so that would listen to us. We met with them. We explained to them what we were doing. We onboarded them by hand, made sure their profiles looked good, took great pictures, wrote their bios for them. It's basically curated and, and, and white gloved them onto the platform. Then we went went to work on, on acquiring homeowners to pair with them and we were able to, to create that spark. And here we are six years later, we have over 200,000 homeowners that use the platform on an ongoing basis to, to get their grass cut. And our best market is still Nashville, Tennessee, even though we're nationwide in the United States because it was the first one we launched. Greenpell is totally nationwide, is it? It's totally nationwide throughout the United States. Uh, we, we, have a, we have a little further, deeper to go in the United States in terms of mid-level markets. You know, your 60,000 to 100,000 population cities. But we want to we want to totally saturate all that and then expand into Canada, hopefully next year. Wow. It is both a, a website and an app. So I guess there's some organic kind of traffic that you're getting. But how are you actually getting the name out there? Do you have a massive marketing budget? Are you advertising on TV and radio? How are you actually getting uh, businesses and homeowners to use Greenpell? Yeah, so one of the early uh, lessons we learned was that passing out door hangers was not a repeatable user acquisition strategy. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I still have painful m- nightmares about that. Uh, in fact, to this day, I can, I can walk up to a door with my eyes closed and just I have the muscle memory on my fingers on how to hang one of those door hangers. I can still do it. You can't teach that. <laughs> yeah, and my co-founder actually got bit by a dog uh, while we were doing that. So yeah, you don't want to have like 10 users for every dog bite. No. We, had, we learned really quick early on that we had to test out different channels for, for marketing and, and digital channels. And keep in mind, we've bootstrapped this business from scratch, so we've never taken on any outside capital. So a lot of times these startups will, will, will raise as much capital as they can and just spend it on user acquisition. And most, sometimes that works, but most of the time it doesn't. And so for us, we've had to organically acquire our users, and, and the best channel we have found for that is, is search. So if somebody pops into Google, lawn care service near me, or lawn care Chicago, or lawn care Nashville, lawn care Tampa, or whatever, 
we pop up it usually number one sometimes number two and through that we're able to acquire that user who has the need they've made that inquiry and they come to our landing page and hopefully understand our value proposition in, in five seconds or less onboard them as a user for free quotes and if they like this what they see they can hire one for us early on we made the bet for search engine optimization to to be our, our our primary channel and if you do that as a startup or even as a business it's going to be one of your core competencies uh, you you have to really make search part of what your business does and for us we generate a tremendous amount of content around our business professionals that use the platform. We write bios about every single one of them, about what makes their business unique and how it relates to their city. We collect data, reviews, statistics on all from all of them. Uh, we understand the average lawn mowing costs in every zip code in the country. Uh, this is all data that we've collected just through the activity on our platform. And then we, we package that and we curate it and then we surface it back to Google, and so all of this rich data and unique data is unlike anything else that's on the web, and so Google rewards that and shows it as one of the top results when somebody's searching for this because it helps solve their problem. How are you divvying up the marketing uh, requirements of GreenPell, Brian? Do you have a dedicated agency for pay-per-click advertising? Do you have another dedicated agency for organic SEO outcomes for above-the-line advertising? Or do you have one agency that does it all? So we started off just my two co-founders and I. Now we have over 20 employees in-house. And then we have a a bunch of contractors that we use to, to get a lot of this stuff done. For me as a CEO... Marketing and growth is is still one of my core competencies it, because a lot of times business owners will want to dole out the marketing and just hire an agency. And, and, and in many traditional businesses, that works. And that's actually a better thing than like if you're a plumber or to your earlier example, your painter. A lot of times it's just better for them to hire a good local marketing agency because they're going to do it better. But it's a little different in, in, the, in the tech uh, space because it's not marketing, it's growth. It's distribution, and those things are, are different. It, it, it's not like we're going out and buying billboards or print ads or TV ads. We're literally crafting our product in such a way that it's able to grow itself. These decisions are not just made from like a CMO or a marketing agency. They require the engineers, the designers, the data architects, the front end coders, the content writers, Everybody, and so me as a CEO, I have to I have to pull all of these resources together and focus them all on one objective, which is okay. We're ranking, you know, two and three on these markets landing pages. Why is that? And we have to literally pull all six of those dis- disciplines together to improve it so we can grow. And we can't outsource that. All of that has to be done in house. And and I think that's one of the the, the keys to our success is that. We outsource what we can, we delegate what we can, but we, we keep in-house things like product design and, and growth and marketing all in-house and make those our core competencies. What, what's been the most challenging part of growing Green Pell? Where do I even start? So it's a good thing I didn't know how hard it was going to be because I never would have done it. But I'm glad I did because I'm not the same person today as I was six years ago when I started it. To my point earlier, my, my businesses have always been a forcing function for me to, to level up, to grow. We are the creative force in our own lives, and my business requires me to, to be the best that I can be. So I'm glad it was hard, but 
in the first two or three years were just excruciatingly challenging, especially uh, bootstrapping that business and very humbling because you got to think, I went from having a company that's doing $10 million a year that we basically were telling people that we, we didn't want their business to then less than a year later, begging, begging those same people, hey, try my new product. It was humbling, it was challenging, and, and the transition from blue collar entrepreneur to tech entrepreneur was one of the challenging, was one of the hardest things. Aside from that, the competition and, and growing one of these things and, and user acquisition without spending millions of dollars is probably the next most challenging thing. If you do these things in a sustainable way, it gives you defensibility, it creates a sustainable business. So it's like if, you know, a lot of times what goes up super quick comes down just as quick. Give us a sense of where Greenpal's at now in, in May 2020, Brian. Just, you know, turnover, staff, daily transactions, number of service providers. Yeah. So this year we're going to pass $20 million a year in revenue. And, and six years ago, I think our first year we did, we did like $10,000. So we're doubling every year, in some cases more. Uh, we have 200,000 homeowners that use the, the platform every week. Several thousand vendors that, that use the platform to not only get new business, but a large portion of run their entire business on top of our technology, which is really where we wanna be. We wanna be the, the platform that your smaller service providers or your new service providers just plug into and they run their entire business on top of our technology and, and GreenPow handles everything for them. That's our, our vision. And we're growing 100% year over year. And even through COVID right now, we're still, we're still set to hit that. And, and some of that might be that we're, we have the wind at our back due to uh, contactless means of ordering this service, which is lucky for us. But uh, we're doing well now here in year six. But the first two or three years was very much an exercise of faith. <laughs> it's an incredible story. Not only do you build one business to $10 million, you go online and now you've built a marketplace turning over $20 million a year. A couple of times you've touched on, or more than twice actually, a business for you as a vehicle for your own personal development, you've said. And I just want to understand that a little bit more because I think there's something in that for everyone listening. What is an example, a specific example of how your current business in Greenpell is your way of developing to become a better person. So one of my favorite quotes is, is George Patton, and he says, if you're not gaining ground, you're losing ground. When I sold my last company, I, like I told you, I took a few months off, six months off, and I began to realize like, there's only so many beaches you can lay on. And I, I started getting stagnant. And what I learned was, oh man, my joy comes from just winning. It comes from setting out goals and knocking them down and just creating something that people like to use. And I had to learn that just from almost like going idle for a while. And Green Pals taught me so many things, just how to design something that people will want to use. And so the marketplace is such a tough critic of what it is you're trying to do because if what you're doing isn't, it sucks, then they're not gonna use it. But if what you're doing works, people are gonna use it. And so for me, it's taught me so many things around product design, user experience, how to craft a, a design that, uh, how, to, how to craft a product that people will use and come back and keep using. And then also just, just the fun of 
creating a platform that small business owners can use and, and improve their livelihood with. It has given me access to that that I didn't have at scale in, in a way beforehand. So, so many lessons, so many things, so many experiences. Are you going to take Green Pell Global beyond the borders of the United States? Well, I wonder about that. I, I listened to an interview with Reed Hastings, the CEO, founder of Netflix, from about 10 years ago. And somebody asked him that same question. And at the time, he said, he said, no, there's just so, like, we need to dominate our own country first before we even think about going international. And he said at the time, he said, you know, we've got, we can 10X here before we even need to go international. At the time, I think they had like 30 million subscribers. And it wasn't until they, I think they reached like several, like over 100 million that they, that they go international. So, you know, I think we're probably going to follow that methodology of until we have completely saturated North America, there's really no reason to, to go international. As sexy as that is, I think it's a fallacy that a lot of startups fall into. They, they are drawn to the allure of becoming an international company and they spread themselves too thin and their value proposition gets diluted. And a lot of times that value proposition is localized. So the, the problems we solve in Nashville, Tennessee are probably going to be a little bit different than in the UK uh, or in Australia. And so we probably need to go as deep as we can in the United States and then move into markets like those, which we, you know, we have on our radar, but it's probably years down the road. I then imagine the answer to the next question is a no as well, but you've built the technology. You've now got this marketplace technology that's working beautiful for lawn care businesses. There is every reason for you to then kind of apply it to every other service provider, plumbers, electricians, handymen, accountants, uh, you, you name it. What's stopping you from doing that? Just you want to focus on your niche? Great question. So that that that's also another tempting Trap. I think a lot of a lot of startups fall into. You know, there there is no Amazon for home services because every one of these services is just so different. From the outside looking in, you would think they're all similar, but every one of them have a hundred unique problems that are unlike the other. The the the, the plumber's day to day tool set looks very different than the painters, than the lawn care service, than the hand than the handyman, than the home cleaning service. And so a lot of a lot of there's a graveyard of startups that have crashed hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital into the ground trying to go horizontal and not vertical. Our strategy and our thesis is you go vertical and go as deep as you can and just become the default system of record for that service provider because your your tool set is so tailor-made to their day-to-day problems that you're able to then provide that Amazon-like, Uber-like experience to the homeowners to order these folks off the shelf. If you don't go deep on the, on the vendor side and, and on the supplier side, you can't provide the Uber experience to the, to the demand side because you don't have, them, you don't have that engagement. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And and Brian, as you Yanks say, there's there's riches in the niches. <laughs> so you're focusing on <laughs> a, a niche. I love it. I've never heard yeah, that well, one. I have a, my OCD has to ask you one last question before I let you go. Um, the business is called Green Pell. The website is your Green Pell. 
Greenpell.com. Greenpell.com is available. What is going on there? Uh, Oh, man. You know, we've tried to purchase it. In the early days, we we were monotical about it. We we literally thought we have the the trademark for Green Pal as well. And in the early days, in the first couple of years, we we used to really beat ourselves up about it. Uh, around we have to acquire that domain. It was almost a fallacy because yes, it's a nice it's a nice thing, obviously, but it's not the thing that's going to keep us from starting and, and keep us from growing. And so as the years have gone on, we've reached out to the owner a couple of times. It's, uh, the conversations haven't really gone anywhere. I'm sure at some point we'll work out something. But for us, you know, when somebody is looking for us, they just type GreenPal into Google. They don't type usually the entire URL out. So it hasn't been a critical thing for us. But at some point, we will probably get that fixed. Well, Brian, uh, from yourgreenpal.com, if you're listening to this and you're in the States and you need your lawn mowed, that's where you need to go. I think it's a really wonderful story, your journey, actually, Brian, as a, as a small business owner uh, on both counts. And maybe I can get you back on the show when you decide to start your third business. And mate, based on your track record, I'll throw you a few dollars in equity if I could, because uh, you sound like you know what you're doing. Thanks for sharing. Hey, I had a lot of fun. Well, there you go. Greenpell founder, Brian Clayton. What a solid bloke. Here's what grabbed my attention from that chat with him. Attention grabber number one. You never know who knows who. It's a great story he told about one of his lawn mowing clients being a franchisee of multiple McDonald's stores. Then he gets that business. So, you know, you sometimes just don't know who you're dealing with and they could be your next big client. So, I guess treat everyone with a certain level of respect, which I know you do. Attention grabber number two. I love his idea of going the extra mile. Simply offering to pick up the cigarette butts in the Macca's drive throughs further endeared him to his client and attracted more Macca's franchisees to use his services. I think the question he was asking too in doing that was, you know, what business are you in? And he said, we're not in the lawnmower business, didn't he? He said, we're in the business of helping others make money. And such a simple thing, it gets him a whole lot more business. Attention grabber number three. I loved his idea of getting out of the building and meeting your customers face-to-face. We've spoken about this a lot of times on the show. And the great questions to ask, as Brian said, where did we delight you? And more importantly, where did we come up short? Get out there and eyeball your clients once COVID-19's out of the way, of course. That's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time and implement it. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. It's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is... I love this bloke's name, Sam Squires of the Backbone Barber Shop on the sunny Gold Coast. That's just like that name. Every barber should be called Sam Squires. It's just like it's a barber's name. 
Yes, I'll have a uh, haircut from old Squires, me boy. Here's what he has to say. Hey, Timbo, my name is Sam Squires. Yes, I know that now. And I'm the owner and operator of Backbone Barbershop, a modern bespoke barbershop on the Gold Coast. I've used great tips from a number of your podcasts and love to apply different techniques to my small service business. The local SEO tips from your two-part podcast was almost a Bible when we set up our shop on Google Business and social media and our booking system pages. And I also enjoyed the awesome greeting tips from the episode with the lads from Scumbag Barbers. They're the barbershop that I go to in Noosa. Yeah, they had some great tips about making your customers feel welcome from the get-go. Keep up the amazing work, Timbo, and thanks for so much knowledge and ideas. Cheers, Sam Squires from Backbone. How's this for a, a, a website address? Backbone-barbershop dot business dot site hmm anyway that's his address hey Sammy you're a winner mate get some lies non-alcoholic spirits Jamie Mustard's book a bonjoro license vouchers for flora and fauna, fauna tradies underwear voucher uh, Mr Lee's noodles you get promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes gotta love that that'll help you with a bit of google juice Everyone else, if you have learned something from this show, email me, tell me what it was, how it's impacted on your business. If I read it out on air, you win. That brings us almost to the end of episode 503 of your favourite marketing podcast. A reminder that you will find plenty more where this came from on the Podcast One Australia app, plus my entire archive of episodes and blog posts, which are full of ideas to grow your business, is over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Next week, we catch up with a fellow with the help of his wife who has created a global shoe brand. Yep. Not the guy who created Crocs, but not far behind, let me tell you. If you're getting value from listening, then please let other business owners know about it. This podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reid, and skillfully pulled together by the incredibly polite team at Podcast One. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. Take action.